Hello and welcome. I'm Sophie Kilbert and today I'm delighted to be joined by David Mayer de Rothschild. David was the youngest British person to reach both geographical poles after he crossed the Arctic in 2006. In March 2010, he and five others set sail on a 9,200-mile journey from San Francisco to Sydney on a boat made from recyclable materials, including 12,500 reclaimed plastic bottles. On that journey, he passed through the massive waste known as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch to raise awareness of its environmental impact and sheer scale. I'm going to talk to him about his explorer's mindset and how he copes with long periods of time on his own or with just a few other people. We record this on Earth Day, so I'll also be asking him for his take on whether we can try and find a silver lining in the current situation with the environmental improvements that we've seen and whether he thinks that they can last. So David, on your trek across the Arctic, you were away from people for over 100 days in what must have been very difficult and trying circumstances. How do you cope with that sort of isolation? Um, well, firstly, thanks for having me on your podcast um, and happy Earth Day. Um, which is quite nice start today, uh, celebrating the earth. Um, yeah, I think, I think the main thing when you're, when you're on any sort of expedition or you're in, um, a sort of confined space or in lockdown as it were, um, is you need to sort of figure out what your, um, you know, you've got to figure out your own sort of safe place as it were with inside of that. And to do that, I think it's, is, is kind of figuring out a, a sort of a routine, um, and I think once you find that routine, um, that, you know, even if you are in a confined space, so for me in the Arctic, it was, you know, you knew that you would always sleep for uh, pretty much 12 hours. It was in, you know, you have like an eight to 12 hour window where you were sleeping um, and eating and doing kind of what I would call repairs. And, and then the rest of the day you were out um, skiing, you know, 12 hours. So you would kind of have 12 hours on and 12 hours off every day. Um, and then within that, you break it down into, um, you know, you put it, you put it into different sections and different times of the day. So, you know, when you're skiing, you'd have two hours in, and then, you know, every hour you would break it up, um, and have a sort of a quick break. And every two hours you'd have a slightly longer break. And after six hours you'd have, um, that'd be sort of halfway through your day of skiing. And then you carry on. I like that throughout the day. So you're kind of breaking it into chunks and figuring out, you know, what works for you. And then you sort of break those chunks down into moments. So if you think too much about, um, you know, if you're projecting into the future too much about what will be and what's, you know, the, the number of days ahead of you and, and, and all the other bits, it becomes a bit of a sort of torturous situation. Um, you, it, I think it's a, I think it's the greatest example of just, you know, I think with all these things is being in the now and being present um, is really important. I think that's something to, yeah, really think about. Putting it into perspective around actually, you know, where you're at and what that means. Um, and I think, you know, listen, I, I think there's a, there's a tendency to, you know, we live in a very sort of rapid, fast paced world. And for a lot of us to sit still, um, you know, and be confined is, is a, is a major shift in our everyday. And so actually spending time with yourself, the mind is, is, you know, one of the greatest challenges. And so the physicality of things, you know, keeping yourself, you know, active has always been one of the things that I think helps balance out the mental state as well. Um, what do you, what did you do? How did you react when that routine was broken? If, if something went wrong, how did that affect you? Um, you know, you sort of, um, you, you spend a lot of time um, preparing for those situations. 
Um, and um, I, you know, it, it, you know, <laughs> in a funny way, I'd rather probably be trekking across the Arctic and feel the sense of movement, or, or sailing across the Pacific and be out um, staring at that endless horizon, um, than confined as I am now in inside in a way, um, with only a few hours out every day. Um, and I think you have to kind of have a flexibility um, to your routine, um, you know, and not be too hard on yourself. And, and I guess the, the difference is here, you know, maybe you run out of tea bags, whereas up there, if you're something breaks, it's quite a major, major issue. Um, so, you know, you have to find, you have to find context in everything. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think the thing about um, with, with any sort of expedition, um, I think the, the sort of, there's a couple of kind of, you know, as I said, basic rules, but I think kind of keeping keeping the sort of um, your, your sense of purpose um, on an expedition, you know, what your role is, your day to day, um, you know, we might be confined, but we still haven't lost our identities, who we are, what we do, what are, you know, you know, 99% um, of us, you know, if we're fortunate enough, still have, you know, um, a sort of a routine that we can carve out on, on a daily basis. Um, we still have our identity, who we are, our community, our friends. And I think if anything, what this does show us is how, um, you know how we are such social creatures and how we all want to belong and how we want to um you know be part of something that is um you know be part of a community really and i think you know one of the things that happens with a lot of people is you take that for granted until you know it's, it's gone i think the same happens on uh, like on an expedition um as such as well i think there's a um you know um i think there's a sort of um, you take for granted in some way, um, you, you know, some of the things, I mean, I, I remember, you know, you'd be skiing along and just the idea of having like a really cold, fizzy drink would become something quite exciting. Sounds bizarre. Or, you know, having a piece of toast, you know, or having a bath. I mean, if you spend a hundred days in the Arctic, um, you're not washing, um, you know, having, you know, sleeping on a bed. Um, those sort of things, you, you, which you do take for granted on a, on a you know, and, and then they suddenly go and you're like, oh, I crave that. And then so when you come back to those situations, um, you have a, a much greater appreciation, a deeper appreciation for the small things. And I think mm -hmm. that's one of the things I think as we come out of our cocoons, as we emerge from um, quarantine, which is hopefully sooner rather than later, I think we'll start to um, appreciate, you know, some of the freedoms that we have and appreciate the the small things that maybe we did take for granted that sort of slip into the background and become um sort of you know almost um oblivious you know we've become oblivious to them you know these these small things um you know and inevitably the things will change um and there are changes obviously that need to be made at least in the short term even if we are released from this quarantine i wonder so. whether people's people's memories are short and and as you say we we do take a lot of things for granted that we're now only beginning to to miss but i wonder whether in people's rush to get back to some sort of sense of normality when they have the opportunity to people might forget that actually we've been in quarantine we've been in isolation for what is relatively a very short amount of time um and i think there's a risk that people forget some of the benefits uh, in that rush to get back to normal yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be um, a sort of the pendulum always swings both ways. And I think there's a sort of, you know, the, the question is, you know, we sort of, we, we liberally use the phrase, myself included, getting back to normal. But what what is normal? What constitutes mm. normal, you know? 
um, our relationship to na nature is anything but normal. Um, you know, so, you know, we, we take it for granted. Um, you know, we've created, um, you know, we've really created such a sort of homogenized system um, inside of the natural world um, that is completely, um, you know, the perfect environment for viruses to be created and to be spread. Nature has this incredibly complex and beautifully master planned um, series of checks and balances that it's evolved over four and a half billion years. And then we come rocking along and we're like, well, if we chop all of this down and we, you know, take all these variety of species and we turn them into the few that we can consume and we put them into massive cages and, and then we just eat them when we want, as we want. And we can keep on taking and taking and taking. At some point, if you keep on pulling hard enough on a string, it breaks. Um, and that's what we've done inside of the web of life. You know, we are one species amongst many. And we've homogenized the system. We've automated it and packaged it and processed it and shuffled into um, very dense urban areas. Um, you know, 70% of us by 2050 will live in an urban environment. Um, and so that's something that is going to really have a, a massive impact, I think, on how we, um, you know, live in the future, because this is not going to be the last of the viruses. There's a there's an interesting thing, I guess you could say that, you know, there's, um, you know, I was thinking the other day about this, the fact that like nature sent us to our room to reflect, you know, um, mm. and, and to kind of think about, you know, our sort of, um, I guess, our role in the web of life. Um, and I think if anything, it's sort of, you know, they say astronauts have this overview perspective um, when they go out into space and they look back and they can really get a sense of just how fragile we are and how interconnected we are and how, um, you know, beautiful this planet is, this spaceship Earth. And I think, if anything, one of the things, if we can kind of move away from, obviously, the, the horrific loss of life that's happened um, and the kind of, um, which is very hard to do, but the sort of, how, how immensely scary it all is and the anxiety that's generated by, you know, a lot of it by the media and the constant barrage of, of um, kind of narratives that, you know, I, I sort of seem to sort of just be there to drive us into more anxiety and more sort of isolation. But I think what you realize is just actually how, you know, for all of the barriers that we create and for all of the, you know, passports and identities that we try and attach ourselves to, just how actually interconnected as a species, how biologically similar we all are, um, you know, how we, um, we're the same. We're just one species, part of many on this incredible blue dot, the spaceship Earth. Um, and, you know, in some ways, our desire to kind of just amass and consume and to um, homogenize nature has, has created this, um, very fragile situation that we are the recipients of now. Um, I think one of the fascinating yeah. things I've seen in terms of that is actually how ready nature has almost been to, to come back again, that it's not too far away. Yeah. I, I, I don't know whether you've seen the videos of the sheep taking over in Landudno, um, <laughs> but also yeah. the whales being sighted just just outside the normally incredibly busy industrial port of Marseille. It's nature's yeah. not that far away. Uh, even as we push it back, and actually, it doesn't seem to take much for it to for it to come back to its rightful place again. Yeah, I mean, I think we 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 are the annoyingly noisy, um, you know, species who just is sort of very unaware. It's sort of um, 
probably a much longer conversation than this, but it, you know, we, we sort of, we've isolated and we've created this sort of false dichotomy that there's nature in us. And actually we do share this planet, you know, and we are one of many species on this planet. And it is amazing how resilient nature is, how it comes back, how fast it comes back. Um, and I think, you know, that's the thing. If we could just sort of press pause and reflect and actually say, well, hang on a second, do we need to be, you know, driving around um, as much as we do, or can we do the meetings that we're doing remotely, or can we spend, you know, what's the upside of that? We can spend more time with our friends and our family and our community, and people that we care about. Well, actually, that's kind of an amazing thing. Uh, and the upside is also that the species, you know, do come back. Um, I say that as I can hear someone in the background outside running around with a, an engine as we speak, making a lot of noise. So. <laughs> Um, sorry about that. But I do think, you know, you're right. I mean, I think there's been there's been this sort of, you know, maybe it's a good news story and people get very excited. And, you know, we've heard of um, fish returning to the canals of Venice and, you know, have they returned to the canals of Venice or were they always there? And it was just the mud that was always being churned up by all the amount of boats. You know, have the whales always been there? But we've actually just stopped for a second to have a look. And, and actually the noise that's generated, as you say, by those boats, you know, the, the sonic, sonic seas that we create, these sort of overwhelmingly, um, you know, massive soundscapes under the water that drive these species into, um, you know, into, into beaches and, in, and away from us, um, they, they suddenly come back. So I do think, I think there is a, there's a, you know, something to be said for the fact that, you know, listen, nature's been around four and a half billion years um, evolving uh, we're the recipients of an oxygenation event that's happened, you know, one and a half billion years ago. Um, you, some of the species that are swimming around in our ocean have been there for 400 million years or more, um, you know, hundreds of millions of years. And, and here we are today sort of rocking in at the last minute, the last hour and the last second, um, you know, sort of just sort of assuming that this planet is here purely for us. Um, and it's not. And I think if anything, we've had a, a moment to kind of look at our vulnerability and we've had a glimpse at just how fragile the system that we've built is and and actually you know for all our sort of you know our interconnectedness and our desires to kind of live on top of each other and to move fast and to trade quicker and to the sort of what i call the era of nowness um we we, we might need to sort of reimagine that um and look at what that you know what, what that really means for our ability to survive and yeah. not just to survive but also to thrive and i think the difficulty will be is how we enact that kind of systemic change we're so used to our consumption habits and we consume a lot um and you just have to see that while consumption habits change in this sort of environment and obviously e-commerce has been the benefit of that at the cost of the high street with we see amazon's share price yeah. at its all-time high unsurprisingly but it's how yeah. we get into the habit of consuming less over the long term even when we're out of this yeah and i think our habits are formed so quickly um, I think that's what's so amazing is that we sit here today on a, you know, um, chatting remotely with wireless headphones on a device that didn't exist a number of years ago that we're all now tethered to. Um, and I think what's interesting, had this only been a few weeks, maybe it would have just passed as a moment. But I do think the fact that this has been months and will be months more, um, that actually it becomes habit forming. And so what those habits are and what those reflections are, um, 
you know, and sadly, it, it, this might be, you know, just to go back to what you said, this might be another nail in the coffin of the high street because people will start to say, well, actually, do I really need to go and get a lot of the things um, that, you know, drive me to go into a space in a store and, and actually I, maybe I should try and, you know, do things now more on a subscription model and have them delivered. And But the flip side as well is that we might also crave experiences richer experiences, deeper experiences. Um, and so actually going to an event or a museum or a space where there's other people to interact with will become um, much more of a, of a, a meaningful moment um, and not something that we just kind of go, oh yeah, I'll just see it at the pub, um, you know, sort of thing, <laughs> which I'm sure a lot of people are desperate to do. Home yeah. pubs <laughs> yeah. have become the, the norm. And I suppose that's another one of those interesting kind of dichotomies almost in the sense that people obviously aren't flying at the moment. And, and the good news for the environment is that there are fewer flights. But on the other side of that, those countries and economies that rely on tourism aren't getting those, that tourism money in. Um, when you look at the, the, the Amazon, for example, that has to cut back on some of its monitoring and protection operations because the tourism money isn't there and cash-strapped governments yeah. aren't there to help either. It's a very difficult balance, isn't it, that, that we have to get back to some sort of environment where both sides uh, uh, get to some sort of equality, maybe. Yeah, I mean, again, I think what, what, what it does is it just heightens the interrelationship that we have the interdependencies, how, you know, economies, um, society, individuals, you, me, all of us are so intrinsically linked. And so this knock-on effect that it has is, is vast, as you say. I mean, there's a sort of, you know, if, if, you, if you knock over one domino, um, because we've built these interconnected systems, it, it does have that effect. And so you know, we, we're seeing, we, I think it's way too early to really know the effect um, that this will have. Um, it's clear, obviously, how fragile our economic system is and how that is, um, you know, it's going to go through uh, what seems to be teetering on a depression, um, which I don't think any of us have lived through. Maybe a few, few elderly um, people out there listening to this probably saying, I lived through that. I know what it was, mm -hmm. um, you know. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of war babies who would say, well, we rationed and you know, the war was, this is a sort of a wartime environment that we're going through um, where companies are being co-opted to make devices um, for the governments around the world and health equipment and, you know, this so-called invisible enemy is, uh, it's being, you know, touted. Um, but is it that invisible? Because obviously the effects are very visible. And I think we have to um, really look at as you say, these systems and and really sort of revalue what's what's important and what what really should take a priority. Um, if we know that um, breathing clean air is a priority um, and and having access to um, a healthy ecosystem has to be a priority if we want to avoid future viruses, because the the, the cost of uh, a collapse in the economy is fractional to the cost and the collapse of our ecology. And I think we have to kind of look at the sort of methodologies and the, and the science and the way that we've kind of, I should say, the pseudoscience of economics, that we've flipped it around to make it way more important um, than nature. And actually, you know, every year we are, um, you know, absolutely destroying nature. Billions of dollars worth of wild animals and plants are traded globally every year still. 
um, which you know obviously contribute to the destruction of all the biodiversity and you were just talking about in the Amazon and throughout you know sensitive regions of the world where you know those systems hold the keys to our survival but yet we look at them as a commodity to be consumed and thrown out and you know I'm a recipient of that as much as anybody I'm not saying that sort of on a high horse um, you know say that as a as, a, as an observer, you know, and as someone who, you know, is, is very, you know, spent a lot of my time thinking about this, this area and how we can do more with less, you know, to quote the great Buckminster Fuller. But I think, that, you know, with all these situations, hopefully comes a new perspective. Um, and I think, you know, some of the changes seem very obvious that we need to kind of enact upon. And, and a lot of the changes, you know, will... Or, or the sort of the sentiments of what's left behind and the changes that will come are yet to be seen. Um, but I'm, I'm sure there's going to be many, many new things that are being formulated right now in bedrooms and living rooms and back gardens and you know, over the web that we haven't even imagined that will come out of this. Well, thank you ever so much for your time, David. That was, that was fascinating and really lovely to, to speak to you. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Enjoy. And uh, hopefully we'll all be outside soon. Yes, definitely. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.